Levi Belfield was brought to court today to hear the details of the string of violent crimes. There is an element in Belfield that is godlike, that does believe in get away with anything. Millie, if you're listening to this, please, please contact someone, please come home. I always remember his reply was, Christ, the, the hairs of my neck are standing up. They have got away with so much, and this is so wrong. I wouldn't say I lost my temper, but there was there was a bit of a showdown. One of the most notorious killers of recent years in this country, and he enjoys the status. From the Daily Mail newsroom, I'm Stephen Wright, and this is the Mail Plus True Crime Podumentary, Levi Belfield, the bus stop killer. Levi Belfield's trial began at Court 6 at the Old Bailey in October 2007. He stood accused of the murders of Marsha MacDonald and Amélie de Lagrange and the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy, as well as horrific offences against two other women. Before the Crown case could start, there was extensive legal argument between prosecution and defence lawyers about what evidence the jury could hear. Levi Belfield was brought to court today to hear the details of the string of violent crimes he's alleged to have committed. Two young women viciously murdered, battered about the head. Two more horrific attempted murders and an attempted kidnapping. A catalogue of brutal attacks all blamed on one man. The jury was told that similarities between these cases would show this was the work of one man and they would prove that Levi Belfield was that man. The trial exposed to the public for the first time the true extent of Belfield's crimes. As well as the murder charges, the Met had gathered evidence of multiple sex assaults and built a picture of a man who thought he was above the law. Geoffrey Wonsall, who wrote a biography of Belfield, was present at the trial. There is an element in Belfield that is godlike, that does believe in get away with anything. And so he would bluster rather than collaborate. Brian Altman, who prosecuted, was his usual forensic self. At this trial, Belfield made the mistake of going into the witness box and Altman crucified him. It was evidence of his arrogance and his narcissism. The journalists, the lawyers, the police who sat in court also saw some of Belfield's character, his extraordinary mood swings and his anger. He could turn on a sixpence. He could be all charm and sweetness and light in this rather unthreatening manner and really kind to everybody in one moment and then instantly he would change. And that was very evident at his trials. When the jury weren't in the room, when they weren't in court, Belfield would revert to type. He would start shouting and use obscenities. The moment the jury walked back into the court, he returned to his butter-wouldn't-melt-in-my-mouth phase. It was an extraordinary schizophrenic performance and that's very very much uh, Belfield for you he really did have two sides to this character but he wasn't in any way uh, no way was he um, certifiably schizophrenic he just used two faces all of this along with the case built by detective chief inspector Colin Sutton and his colleagues on the Met murder squad painted a picture of a powerful man who targeted innocent young women when they were alone and vulnerable depravity. You take a young girl's life for no other reason than you feel like it. And this is not, this is not reasonable behaviour. This is disgraceful. I mean, it's, it's outrageous. And yet, and yet, he got calmly back into his car 
and mm. drove away. Uh, it's it's a monstrous. It, it, you, there can be no excuse for this kind of behaviour. Mm. It is disgrace. Mm. It's depraved. Though his behaviour cannot be excused, Geoffrey believes Belfield's relationship with his mother may have shaped his opinion of women. Belfield is from a Romany family. The Brazil family, one of the best-known Romany families in West London. His mother, called Jean Rabbits, who then married a man called Belfield, but unfortunately he died when Belfield was ten. Levi was the fourth of Jean's four children. He was the youngest. He was spoilt. She certainly believed that he could have any girl he wanted. And that shaped his view of women, do you think? He needed them, but he despised them. He was happier in the, in the company of men. At one stage, I can remember him saying, I hate blondes, I hate women, you're not worth a bolt. That was very much Belfield's attitude to women. The families of the victims sat through the trial and their enormous bravery won widespread respect. They faced the prospect of hearing in detail not only the barbarity of Belfield's hammer attacks, but also the utter senselessness of their loved ones' deaths. The most moving thing was Amelie's family. They'd come over for the trial. And there are so many wonderful pictures of them. They were so dignified and so totally different from the man in the dock. They acted with such restraint and extraordinary dignity. After sentencing, Amelie's parents, who sat through the entire trial, were comforted by one of her friends. They described her murder as an open wound that will never heal. After five months of truly harrowing evidence, Belfield was found guilty in February 2008 of the murders of Marsha and Amelie, as well as the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy. There was a profound sense that justice had been served and that the man in the dock deserved the life sentence that was later handed down. Levi Belfield was convicted of murdering two women and trying to kill another. But detectives believe that Levi Belfield may be responsible for many more attacks, including two murders. Belfield had been linked to another high-profile case, that of the kidnap and murder of the teenager Millie Dowler six years earlier. Her disappearance has jolted the comfortable commuter town of Walton. They don't want to think she's been harmed, but find it increasingly difficult to come up with any other credible explanation. We have nothing that um, gives us any positive indication that she's gone off of her own volition. Equally, we have no positive information that she has been taken off the street and abducted. Um, at this time, all of our lines of inquiry... Millie, if you're listening to this, please, please contact someone. Please come home. We really want to hear something about you. Back in March 2002, the 13-year-old schoolgirl from Surrey had literally vanished in broad daylight whilst walking home from the train station. It was a case I covered from the very start and one which I was later critical of following conversations with trusted police sources who could not believe how slow and sloppy Surrey Police's initial response had been to her going missing. Here was a beautiful, intelligent schoolgirl from a loving family whose disappearance was completely out of character. Video footage released by her parents of her ironing at home was played repeatedly on national TV bulletins, but prompted no firm leads. There was very, very little to go on. Millie simply disappeared off the face of the earth. 
she has some chips in the buffet at Walton on Thames Station with a few mates, and then sets off to walk home. She would normally not have got off at Walton on Thames. She would have got off at the next station, the one nearer London, Hersham, which was slightly nearer her house. But on that particular day, entirely by chance, she gets off at Walton on Thames, and then, in a puff of smoke, disappears off the face of the earth. How this came about captured the public imagination in the most extraordinary way. For months, there was speculation, but nothing. It was six months before Millie's skeletonized body was discovered, about 25 miles away. At around 2pm on Wednesday the 18th of September, a lady and gentleman were collecting mushrooms. Whilst they were looking for mushrooms, they found what they thought to be uh, human remains. Surrey Police continued to investigate the Dowler case, but with no success, even after her body was discovered. After Belfield emerged as the prime suspect for Marsha and Amelie's murders, there was mounting speculation linking him to Millie's death. Whilst Colin Sutton had been investigating Amelie's murder, he had sent a diving team into the river at Walton-on-Thames to recover possessions missing from the crime scene at Twickenham Green. On that day, we attracted a lot of attention when you, you seal off the river and you've got divers going down there. And we took great pains to say publicly, this is nothing to do with Millie Dowler, because at that time we didn't think it was. It was you know, a very different offence and, and, and so forth. It wasn't until later in the Amélie de Lagrange investigation that Colin Sutton began to suspect there was more to link Belfield to Millie's death. It's one of those moments I'll always remember where I was and what I was doing. I was, I was sitting in a police car in the VP garage at Kempton Park, near Kempton Park Racecourse, and uh, I was looking through Belfield's intelligence record and, and saw that in March 2002 he was living in Walton-on-Thames. And my first reaction was... I wonder if it's somewhere near the bridge. Uh, that's you know, why he went there and disposed of the property. So I got out the old trusty Met A to Z, which also covers about sort of 10, 15 miles around London as well. Looked at Walton on Thames for this address where Belfield lived. Saw that it wasn't really that close to Walton Bridge, but it was very close to Walton Railway Station, where I knew Millie Dowler had last been seen before she was abducted. And of course, by this time, we've also been reading through that, that, that not only does Belfield do the things we suspect him of, but also that he had a, an interest in underage girls, in, in young teenage girls, he and his friends, and they would sometimes sort of procure them and drug them and, and rape them. And of course, Millie Dowler was 13 years old by the time that she went missing. So I thought, this is, you know, this is, this is too much of a coincidence again. There is an old saying that detectives don't like coincidences. Colin decided to pass on his hunch to Surrey Police. My then wife worked for Surrey Police and uh, I had the phone number of the senior investigating officer in my phone. And it was about half past eight, nine o'clock at night and I phoned him and, and said, I'm really sorry to bother you at this time, but this is what I'm doing. This is the man I'm looking at. This is our suspect. And this is where he lived when Millie went missing. And, and I always remember his reply was, Christ, the, the hairs on my neck are standing up. So that was the first time that I sort of alerted Surrey Police the fact that Belfield might be worth looking at. I became aware, as the Daily Mail chief crime correspondent at the time, that Belfield had some questions to answer about his involvement in Millie's case. But I also got the firm impression from confidential discussions I had with various sources 
that Surrey police weren't that interested in entertaining him as a suspect, and they didn't particularly welcome the input of the Met in their investigation. They did have their own suspect, well, certainly one suspect in particular, that they were still working through. And at the kind of senior levels, their initial reaction was, well, yeah, OK, we'll, we'll work through doing what we're doing, and you know, if that doesn't pan out, we'll have a look at your Met. And, and that's really why it kind of it, it dragged on for some time. At the kind of frontline level, we were talking to Surrey quite a lot. My team were talking to their counterparts in Surrey quite a lot. But as an official kind of suspect, Belfield wasn't taken on for, for some months afterwards. Right. And it, it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's a matter of some sort of record that, that what happened was that I eventually... I wouldn't say I lost my temper, but there was there was a bit of a showdown between myself and, and one of their officers, uh, one of their senior officers there, because and, and I asked what was really ridiculous question. Said, "Why don't you Why don't you want to solve this? This is your man. You should be looking at him." And they took exception to the fact of me saying, you know, suggesting they didn't want to solve it. And, and it it was kind of it was one of those situations where we had to have that sort of bust up to make friends and to uh, to calm down and be sensible about it. And that happened very soon afterwards. So this was a case of a police force becoming a bit territorial? It goes back to the days, doesn't it, when you used to be send the Met in, you know, call for the Met, because small forces before amalgamation just didn't have the resources to deal with serious investigations. And you'd get a uh, senior detective and his staff officer dispatched on the train with the upcountry to, to investigate it. And I think there was, there was sort of a degree of that, that they didn't want the Met to be solving or thinking they could solve the biggest investigation in Surrey Police history. There was also the added dimension, the added more sort of personal dimension in that, I, as I said, I worked for a short time in Surrey Police. It's no secret, I didn't have the happiest of times there. I didn't really uh, enjoy my time there very much. I didn't get on very well with some of the hierarchy there. So I think not only was it that they didn't really want the Met to solve it, they certainly didn't want Colin Sutton to have any involvement in solving it. Besides any reluctance on Surrey's part to accept help from another force, there was also the issue of the modus operandi of the killer. Belfield had attacked Marsha and Emily from behind, hit them over the head and left them for dead. Kate Sheedy had been run over. But Millie Dowler had been kidnapped, killed in an as yet unknown location, and her body dumped about half an hour away in Woodland. Police found it hard to believe one man would kill or attempt to kill in such different ways, and I can still recall very clearly talking to one very senior Met officer about the possibility of one man having so many different methods of attack. It sort of threw the police off the scent, uh, not just in Surrey Police, but at a high level in the Met as well. But Colin was certain his hunch was right and kept pushing. Belfield is such a complex character and such a an unbelievably lawless sort of character. And the things we were looking at were so different to the abduction of a, the murder of a 13-year-old girl that you can kind of understand the initial reluctance. It was only when we looked at the other things that people were telling us about Belfield and who he spent his time with and what he did and, and, and how he lived his life that you you could understand that actually he was no one-trick pony. You know, his, his offending, his serious offending took many different forms.
Police eventually identified a red car in the CCTV taken from near where Millie had disappeared. It was the same make and model as the one Belfield's partner had owned at the time. I'm sitting at a meeting with, with, with Surrey Police and we're talking about Belfield and I say, I know you've got a picture of a red car coming out of the road where his flat was. It's a red Dayu. That's Emma Belfield's partner's car. It's probably him driving it because she was somewhere else that day. So why don't we go to, you know, where else in the town did that car go afterwards? In the same way as we did with the white van, if you like, to follow. And mm-hmm. I get a sort of shuffling, shuffling of papers and looking, people looking at their feet and saying, well, we haven't got that. We didn't do that. So the only CCTV that they took was on the Birdseye building, which mm-hmm. is right opposite where many went missing. The investigation had hit another roadblock. Basic-ish things that weren't done, I think because they didn't have the staffing to do it, and, and it was all about trying to find her rather than looking at the investigation. Missing children are cases which cause so much angst for police officers. And it's so difficult to make the right decision because, you know, every single one potentially could turn into an abduction and a murder, but... The truth is that 90-odd percent of them actually turn up with a child coming back home after a day or two or, or something like that. Mm, mm. And it's trying to trying to gauge the response and making the response appropriate to the information you've got. It's a very, very difficult decision to make and it's a difficult one to criticise. What happens is as soon as you think that there is a potential for this to be something more serious than a child having a, a tantrum and, and running off for a bit, then you start sort of concurrent investigations. You still have your missing person inquiry, but you start the preparations for a criminal investigation. I think in some ways that balance probably wasn't achieved as quickly as it should have been. As I revealed in an extensive article in the Daily Mail in 2008, as well as failing to carry out thorough house-to-house inquiries following Millie's disappearance, Surrey Police ignored Belfield's attempts to target two other young girls in the weeks before she vanished and neglected to identify a red car he drove, captured on CCTV the day she went missing. Incredibly, in the two years before Millie's abduction, Belfield was also reported a staggering 93 times to police for alleged indecent assaults, physical attacks and obscene phone calls. These missed opportunities left the serial killer free to hunt down other victims. They were fatal police errors because he went on to commit two more murders. But with the vital assistance of Colin Sutton and his team in the Met, Surrey police were eventually able to make a compelling case against him based on key circumstantial evidence, witness testimony around his movements on the day Millie vanished and his so-called bad character as a convicted killer. From a high security prison back to the Old Bailey, convicted killer Levi Belfield goes on trial for the murder of Surrey schoolgirl Millie Dowler more than nine years ago. Belfield was eventually convicted of the abduction and murder of Millie in June 2011, some nine years after she'd disappeared. He was sentenced to life in prison. For him, an unrepentant child killer, 
life will mean life. But after his conviction, the families of his other victims began to ask, could Millie's murder have been solved earlier? And could the lives of their loved ones have been saved? The context of it, I guess, was that at the time, Surrey had a lot on their plate in terms of major investigations. So there was a, a nobody murder that was taking a lot of resources. And then there became the deep cut soldier death three investigation, which I got involved in there. Uh, and the same time as Millie Dowler. And they're, they're a small force and they're not kind of used to having sort of concurrent demands like that. But I think there's also a question to be asked as, as well, that perhaps the amount of exposure that their officers get to serious crime at the time was pretty sort of lacking. And there were some lines of inquiry followed at the start of the investigation, which didn't really help. And, and you know, the Millie Dowler case was front page news for a long time, wasn't it? You know, and, and it's a big, it was a big thing. And kind of like I said about Levi and Twickenham, really, the, the, the public wanted to help and they thought that, and of course they think they're being helpful and you don't want to discourage the public from trying to help and, and, and calling in. But they were calling in potential sightings of Millie Dowler all over the country. And Surrey's response to that was to send two officers to investigate each one. And it meant that with the other drains, there was just not enough people to do the initial work and clear the ground under their feet. I mean, the big sort of thing that came out of it, I suppose, in, in, in the, the sort of inquest um, into the investigation that's, that's gone on in the media was the fact that uh, Belfield's flat, which was so close to, to where she was last seen, the house-to-house -house inquiries were never completed there. Well... Do you know, that quite often is the case. It's actually quite rare that you do 100% coverage of house to house inquiries because there will be houses where there aren't anybody living there. You know, there's nobody mm. living there and you can't. Mm. But but to me, the things that were, were more relevant were things like this. The girl in Shepparton, the day before Millie went missing, that only came to light when we in the Met went went to Surrey with the red car and the red day and say, you know who this is, this is Belfield. They then go on to, I think, Crime Watch or something with, with this red car mm. making an appeal. And the, the young girl's father then writes to the chief constable and said, well, I reported the fact that a man in a red car had tried to abduct my, or tried to talk my daughter into his car mm. in Shepparton the day before, and nobody did anything about it. Mm. The interesting thing for me with that is that the very next day, just on the other side of the river, a girl is abducted and nobody married the two up. Nobody said, because one of the first things you do is you do an intelligence trial and you say, okay, what similar instance might we have had in the area? Now, I don't think that would have saved Millie, but it might well have meant that Belfield came onto the radar much earlier and it might have saved Marsha and it might have saved Emily. It was plain to me on a case I'd covered for nearly a decade, that Surrey police had made fatal errors in 2002. The force's failure to carry out basic inquiries early on, the lack of direction and leadership, and the obsession with the idea that Minnie's innocent dad was responsible, all combined to allow Belfield to stay on the streets and commit more murders. Surrey police's difficulties in handling a, a major inquiry like the disappearance of Minnie Dowler proved to be a grim foreshadowing of another high-profile case I covered in 2002, that of the disappearance and murder of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman, the schoolgirls who were killed in the most savage way by Ian Huntley in Cambridgeshire in the summer of 2002. 
Cambridgeshire Police, like Surrey, really struggled to deal with the enormity of the investigation and needed reinforcements, although thankfully they caught Huntley before he was allowed to commit any more offences. Levi Belfield hasn't been quiet during his time in prison. In 2015, whilst in Wakefield High Security Prison, he reportedly confessed to a number of other murders, including the shocking hammer deaths of Lynn Russell and her daughter Megan in Kent in 1996. The Met launched an investigation into all the cases to which Belfield had been linked. It was a huge undertaking, coordinating 10 police forces and taking over a year. But by November 2016, he announced that all lines of inquiry had been exhausted. There was no evidence to link Belfield to these new cases. Belfield's biographer Geoffrey Wansall believes his confession was a ploy to get his name in the papers and toy with the police. It's mind games, isn't it? And besides, he, he really does quite like the publicity. He, he must be one of the most notorious killers of recent years in this country. And he enjoys the status. I mean, yes, there's a whole list of other crimes he may well have committed. In 2017, uh, both the Mail and the Sunday Times reported uh, 24 other possible crimes, killings, attacks. Perfectly possible, but would, are they really going to use police resources? After all, two whole life terms, not much else anyone can do. I think he likes to play with the police. And so we'll get a little titbit. In that respect, he's not unlike Ian Brady. Brady liked to toy with the police. I also don't believe that in the end, if there are other crimes, which I believe there probably are, uh, Belfield is going to eke that out to sustain himself during his period of incarceration. He's not going to say, oh, actually, I'm, but while I'm at it, I'm going to tell you about X, Y, Z and A, B and C. He's going to use it to maintain people's interest in him. And it's as, it is as calculating as that. Belfield may have confessed in a cynical attempt to increase his own notoriety, but there are other crimes to which Belfield has never confessed and for which he has never stood trial, despite police gathering evidence of his involvement. I'm absolutely sure I know other people that have been attacked, assaulted, sexually assaulted, indecently assaulted by him. Anyhow, I've spoken to them. Uh, there are lots of them out there. I'm as happy as I can be that we didn't miss any murders, that there's no murder out there for which he is responsible, that he hasn't been suspected of and he hasn't been charged with. Assaults, indecent assaults, yes, dozens of them. Murders, I think none. During the investigation into the murders of Marsha and Amelie, Colin Sutton's team gathered extensive evidence of Belfield's sexual violence against a number of women in fact, Belfield was charged over some of these offences in order to keep him in police custody. Despite Belfield serving two life sentences, there are those who feel he escaped justice for these sexual crimes, and others who ask, if he was detained over these crimes at an earlier stage, would these three young women still be alive? Debbie Wysang, a former child sexual exploitation manager at Hillingdon Council in West London, wrote an internal report into what she believes is a cover-up of a paedophile ring preying on young girls in the borough. She believes Belfield was one of the men involved, but that others have never faced justice, and her report was passed to Scotland Yard. 
Levi had, and it is well known, a friendship with Siraj Garu. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also had a um, close association as well with Victor Kelly. Victor Kelly and Suraj Garu were two convicted paedophiles who lived in the Hillingdon area. They were known to have preyed on girls living in council care. The majority of the, of the girls were looked after. I have had, you know, females come forward who have, you know, shared even, you know, the tiniest bits of information about how they would be picked up by Vic Kelly, by Levi. You know, he would purposely sit outside children's homes. Police were aware of this as well. I've got, you know, females that have come forward to say that they would be told to have their school shirts. If the collar was up, they would be picked up. If the collar was down, you know, then they wouldn't be touched. So they they knew exactly, um, you know, what they was doing. Levi Belfield had um, had another property um, where young girls would be taken. Vic Kelly had a property where young girls were taken. Some of those girls actually knew each other and would go from one property to the other. Debbie believes that social services and the police were aware of the activities of this group. But during the investigation, this information was put to one side. All the professional bodies knew that the grooming of several, several um, young females was known, but they were told their focus was on the murders. But what about the victims of these other crimes? Did they get the justice they deserved? The females that have come forward to me, you know, very traumatised. They don't feel that they've ever been listened to. They say that they do absolutely want justice. I want this all blown up in the same way as Savile. I know that Mm. there's hundreds of victims out there and I suppose I speak for the people that have come forward to me to try and make that brave stand because between the three of them and the several other males, they have got away with so much and some of those continue to do so in the community and this is so wrong. Debbie's passion for justice for Belfield's other alleged victims is deeply impressive. During the making of this podumentary, she put me in touch with two women who say they had dealings with Belfield's sex gang. I have no reason to doubt their words, but at a time when police resources are under real pressure, it seems highly unlikely to me that any new prosecutions will take place, certainly any time soon. What I am certain of is that the Belfield case will continue to attract headlines in the future. Millie's sister Gemma wrote a really powerful, harrowing book about the case in 2017. And it was only last year that Colin Sutton's book Manhunt was turned into an acclaimed primetime ITV drama starring Martin Clunes as the man himself. If we have to trace 25,000 bands, then we have to trace 25,000 bands. Some people say he he actually plays me a little bit more serious than I really am in real life, which is a bit odd. But uh, it was was great to see him do such a a serious role and do it so well. Monsieur de Lagrange? Yes. Detective Chief Inspector Colin Sutton. I've kind of got used to it now, but people still take Mm. the mickey, of course. You've been listening to a Male Plus true crime podumentary, Levi Belfield, The Bus Stop Killer, with me, Stephen Wright. With thanks to Colin Sutton, 
Jeffrey Wonsall and Debbie Mysank.